Choosing Wisely was launched in the US to much fanfare. Since then, the movement has spread around the world, with successful chapters set up in Canada, Australia, Brazil, Italy, Japan, New Zealand, and most recently, the UK. The campaigns have not been without criticism, from how individual recommendations are chosen to the way in which patients have been involved. I'm Kat Chatfield, Quality Improvement Editor for the BMJ, and to discuss what's been learned from those campaigns and what the UK is going to be doing, I'm joined by three of Choosing Wisely UK's steering group. First we have Sue Bailey, who's head of the steering group. We've got Ramo Senthropala, who's an honorary consultant in anaesthesia and perioperative medicine. And listeners will recognise the voice of our third guest, Richard Lehman, who's in the middle of uh, creating a unit for the shared understanding of medicine. Thank you very much for coming. So, Ramay, tell us a bit more about Choosing Wisely. So, Choosing Wisely is an international um, initiative, as you said, first launched by the um, in America by the American Board of Internal Medicine. And it's really born from the fact that um, we're looking for transformative ways in which we deliver healthcare. And part of that is the conversation that we have between patients and clinicians and healthcare providers. Um, and the premise is is that looking for areas of care where that conversation could improve. The original American program was very much uh, focused on low value care, so in line with the overdiagnosis, over medicalization within healthcare. And what we've seen in the last five years is whilst that stream still persists, it's also with an increasing acceptance that actually we've got to look at ways that we can involve patients in our decisions um, and also how we deliver shared decisions as well. A combination of uh, reducing low value care but increasing shared decision making and this shared understanding that, that Richard is working on. Okay so you said this is going to hopefully be a transformative approach so how is Choosing Wisely going to transform our, our shared decision making and, and the reduce the use of low value care? So I think it's going to be a stepwise process. Um, I think we're in times where in healthcare, it's sometimes described as the perfect storm, and we all accept that. Innovation's increasing, our population's changing, and we're in times of constraint at both a national and an international level. So we've got to think of new ways, and I know in the UK that's the sustainability and transformation plans have come out of that. And really where Choosing Wisely is, is it's a real chance for us to relook at the way we have these conversations in healthcare. So innovation is outstripping us which is great and it's great that we've got so many variations in tests and diagnostics and treatments but how do we actually match the right test and the right diagnostic to the right patient and that has to be underpinned in understanding the patient's value Um, so I think that's where choosing wisely is perhaps not unique but works collaborative with existing initiatives and thinking within medicine. You mentioned the STPs and sustainability and transformation plans, which are very much a sort of systemic, uh, structural approach to to sort of meeting some of these difficulties with the current climate. Um, And yet with Choosing Wisely, you're very much talking about conversation. So are you expecting this to happen in the sort of within within the consultation in that level? Or or does this apply to conversations with patients across the system? I think this is going to be Um, Mm multi-tiered. I think we've got to choosing wise as an international initiative so which is great because actually it builds a community of practice it builds people with common interests and a common passion for this to come together but really fundamentally we need to deliver this at the front line to our patients so it's going to be multi-tiered and what it means at a international national regional and local level is going to be very different 
Um, but fundamentally, yes, this is about the frontline clinical service and the conversations that we're having with our patients. I noticed from having a look at some of the recommendations sort of from a general practice perspective, which is my clinical background, um, you know, a lot of them were not particularly startling, you know, in terms of don't image and low back pain, for example. Um, so I suppose, you know, what we hear a lot from the front line is we're already overloaded. The volume of guidance that's coming at us is phenomenal from NICE, from SIGN, from you know, British Thoracic Society from wherever. So what what is different about the recommendations um, and how do you expect people to put those into practice or how are you going to support them to put them into their practice? I think the first thing to say is actually um, we work collaboratively with NICE. So NICE have the do not do list. So we were quite keen not to reiterate or um, what had already been done. Um, and also we know that some of the former criticism perhaps on choosing wisely was that both the public face, so both the public and patients and as well as professionals maybe don't respond as um, as was in originally intended to a list of do not do's. So we're gradually moving away from that. Um, it still does form a component of our recommendations and I think that's just reflecting on the fact that we're on a learning curve and we're trying to understand what the best way forward is. With respect to um, supporting um, local implementation, um, we've had a cu- we've had a number of trusts actually nationally come to us with um, initi- initiatives that have already come into play actually. Um, so we've got one in London which has already looked at demand management within um, pathology, for example, and um, implementing some of the specific recommendations has reduced their pathology ordering and actually saved it's a pound and 19 per patient. So, um, and that was actually done independently of the academy and it was really impressive work and really impressive to know that that impact had already got out there. Um, I think with respect to specific implementation, it's a challenging course and it's a slightly uncertain course. Um, And what we can do as the academy um, is be quite pragmatic about it. Um, So we're choosing several initiatives, so one, perhaps is to support education and training so the way we're trained as doctors is very content driven it's quite scientific um, I know in general practice we've been always forerunners in decision making and listening to patients expectations but and perhaps we need to learn from that and certainly you know for example my own college the Royal College of Anaesthetists um, are starting a shared decision making program have already started championing this because we know that actually for example, matching the right patient to the right operation is imperative and knowing their end-of-life preferences is imperative to what we do as clinicians. Um, so, yeah, I think one aspect is the professional side and the other aspect is obviously public and patient engagement. And we know we were at the International Roundtable for Choosing YC last week and we know that is an area where we need to focus on but in a very pragmatic and patient and public-led um, strategy so I think we need yeah we do need advice and guidance there as to how we actually implement these five questions in a pragmatic way that makes a difference um, and this is given the fact that actually public engagement is quite difficult to measure so um, I think it's a complex issue but it's certainly something that we need to look at and the international partners have got a number of initiatives so you know the American Canadians are looking at 
patient advocates who've been championing choosing wisely so that might be a road that we go down but again it's dependent on the I guess the advice and the support that we get um, from that perspective. Sure. Can we talk a bit more, more now about the patient questions? Because so far we've sort of focused on the recommendations, but that's just one strand of the work. And, and the other strand of the work is, is the questions for patients to ask professionals. Can we talk a bit about how you develop those and how, how you expect them to be, to be spread and potentially received by, by professionals? Well, I've been out of general practice now for seven years, um, so I don't know how well these are percolated through. Uh, the questions are, do I really need this test treatment or procedure? Um, I've certainly asked that of my GP, but I'm not sure how many patients actually ask that explicitly. But at least giving them permission to do it is is a step forward. Um, what are the risks and or downsides? I think that is a question that patients have always asked of treatments. Whether they ask it of tests is another matter, and I think that's a culture change that we're um, at the forefront of um, promoting. Uh, what are the possible side effects, i.e. harms? Well, I think that that really is question two stated slightly differently. Um, so there are people who would argue for narrowing this to four or three questions. Um, are there simpler, safer options? Um, it, that again is a fairly blunt question, you know, are you actually recommending something that I don't really need, doctor, and why don't we do something simpler and safer. Um, again, I think that needs a little more examination. But I think question five is a very interesting one, and that is what will happen if I do nothing. Um, and that's something that patients daren't ask very often, and doctors in a hurry to do be seen to do something always tend to do things. And I guess the gold, the golden question for us is, would I have that done to me? Uh, it may not be always applicable to the patient in front of you uh, because choices vary very widely between patients. But I think these are excellent questions to start with. Um, the place of choosing wisely started by being uh, essentially top-down in its thinking uh, based on campaigns elsewhere, particularly in the USA where over-provision is, is a, a tremendous problem and there are far fewer restraints on um, the worst kind of clinical autonomy, which is I can do this, therefore I will, and I will earn some money for myself and my institution by doing it. We don't have many of those incentives in the UK, though there is always a, a tendency for um, frontline clinicians or notable clinicians to follow trends, and we've seen this a lot in surgery, for instance, um, and followed by backtracking and reversal of, of procedures. Now, we are to some extent in, in that game in choosing wisely, but we're not top-down um, in our f thinking now. And I think um, there was some misconception early on that this would be another form of rationing, that doctors would put their heads together and decide what clever things um, they would impose on the NHS. Um, this is not it at all. And I think um, the adoption of patient-led 
decision-making is something that's very fundamental to this, and that can only be a gradual culture shift. And I don't think, except perhaps in a few instances, that we have the metrics to, dis to distinguish what we're doing from what other people are doing. And in fact, from my current position, I wouldn't even want to do that particularly. Um, I would instead want <coughs> to group together all the organizations, um, which could be very confusing to patients, who all want patient involvement. So um, public and patient involvement is much talked of and almost a silo in itself. Um, Evidence-based medicine wants patient involvement, but can easily become <coughs> a, an evidence-crunching industry of its, of its own. Shared decision-making has been promoted for more than 20 years and again has developed its own sort of discourses, its own kind of research, as if it doesn't take place in the context of real life, whereas it's far from being just providing a tool for a clinician to use at one point in time. Those can be very valuable, especially in Ramai's situation of preoperative care. But we in general practice know that it's an ongoing dialogue. It's, it's a process of trust. It's a process of a deeper understanding of patient attitudes, needs, options. And we can never get good enough at this because it changes all the time. So uh, my my uh, aim in, in, in engaging with Choosing Wisely, which I think is a wonderful initiative, is to make us feel more part of a community, both of learning from each other and developing the skills to continue that learning with patients as an essential part of a, of a continuous lifelong feedback. And that applies both to procedures and to diagnostic thinking as well. But um, that's a, a, a very big thing for an old man to take on, so I'm hoping that the younger generation will get some inspiration from this movement and, uh, and make it much more than uh, just the sum of a few colleges um, getting together and producing guidelines. It's the sum of, of the whole shared understanding of medicine, which is why I adopt that term, because its, uh, its acronym is SUM. Okay. Thank you. So again, we've covered quite a lot in, in that sort of discussion of, of the patient questions. And I think a sort of couple of the things I want to pick up on, I think one is that tension between um, moving away from what was perhaps maybe a top-down sort of um, campaign type approach in the US to something that's much more of a, a movement, sort of social movement, which is the, mm. one of the terms you used. Um, and obviously that needs to be heavily, heavily driven and, and hopefully led in many ways by the patients and public. Um, and so how, as, as sort of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges or as a Choosing Wisely steering group, which is very aligned with the profession in inverted commas, how, have you, how are you working with those stakeholders to try and um, sort of uh, co-create this movement beyond the sort of what we've discussed already with the recommendations? Um, I have to say, you know, like I said, we're the toddler initiative. So we only launched last year. So we're less than a year old. Um, and... It's certainly a focus going forward, and equally, we would we would absolutely welcome um, any suggestions there because we we 
acknowledge we're not the experts at this at all it's 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 fundamentally down to what's right for patients so it's their values it's their preferences their beliefs so you know any support with that is very welcome so answers on a postcard yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> Fantastic. It strikes me that this is this is a problem that that is increasingly being taken seriously by all the um, organisations which share our aims. And if we're a toddler organisation, then the neonate organisation is Denmark, and their um, royal colleges have decided that they will only have clinicians and patients in in a room together deciding on. Mm. Uh, their wise choices if we sort of stop and pause and think for a moment and we wind back we have a very significant year for the NHS next year 70 and it was indeed in the 1960s that the NHS caught the idea of Carl Rogers about client-centered care they renamed it patient-centered care and so we've known from the 1960s this is the right thing to do so you could argue we've been a bit slow about it, but I think this is a very important stepping stone towards achieving that. I think the other thing it's done, um, as I said previously as the chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, I think what it has done, it has eased some of the conversations between the colleges. So I could sit in a room where perhaps radiologists and pathologists would sort of sit rather frowningly towards um, the rest of the clinicians about investigations we were doing which we didn't really need to do. I think it's made those conversations better and I think that goes to where we are with what we know are not the key challenges, the key realities of the success of the NHS, that we have an ageing population, that we don't conveniently present with one illness, we have multiple conditions. and I think that's why it's so good. I'm reminded of a, there was a study done where a very bright academic physiotherapist looked at the outcome of knee operations and you could hear his disappointment when he spoke on the Today programme that the outcomes hadn't been as good um, as he might have expected. But he'd not asked the question of the people, what did they want for their operation? And some people wanted to run the marathon, some people just wanted to be out of pain, some people just wanted to be able to get to the front door, to have a conversation with their neighbours so they didn't feel so socially isolated and depressed. So I think it's the cumulative gain we can get from this. And I now finish clinical practice but sit as a non-exec on a a trust board. And I'm busy thinking how we can use this to mesh everything we do, to, to ramp up improvement, which we have to do across the whole system. So it's not just how the medics are thinking, it's how the receptionists are thinking, it's how the researchers are thinking. And I think this can be this sort of connective tissue across the system. Uh, and I would have aspirations for how far we can have come by the NHS 70th birthday, and I would quite like us a child psychiatrist to have us reached early adolescence. <laughs> okay, so from toddlerhood to early adolescence in the space of uh, the next year, so that's quite an ambitious aim, but that's that's good to know what we're going for. So we, we've talked quite a lot about framing this in terms of a, a culture change towards a shared understanding of medicine. 
Um, and we've talked about some of the, the early benefits of, of the work so far. So creating a shared language and a shared vision, creating a kind of goal and sort of a, a, an imperatives of things that we, we, we should be aiming for. Um, so let's talk a bit more about this sort of black box of implementation. We've talked about some levers already in terms of patient and public involvement as a, as a lever and um, also, you know, organisations themselves running with this and, and, and Sue mentioned her own sort of trust as a non-exec, how, how that might work. Um, and we've also talked a bit about um, education and training as a lever, but, you know, what, what other sort of things exist within the system that, that you are sort of hoping to to enmesh choosing wisely with to, to sort of influence that practice and, and make this, you know, just everyday everyday professional we, practice. We want to behave with intelligent kindness as a give and take in every situation. And I think this is something that would help commissioners because in these conversations it is a good way um, of introducing the conversation about the holy grail of prevention. And therefore, it helps to it, to start that conversation about self-guided help, how we can avoid getting to our long-term conditions. So I think it gives an opening, uh, maybe not in an acute position, but maybe when somebody's gone through the correct procedures, there's been good shared decision-making, saying, right, going forward, how can we help you to stay well, to lead the life you wish to lead? So I think it's got potential to help across population health and prevention is the holy grail. So how how do you see CCGs using choosing wisely to help them having have those conversations? If that's the goal, what's what's sort of the path to the goal? Well the first path would be because um, we spend our life trying to often being quite negative about commissioners about the choices they make and where they spend money. So the first path part of the pathway would be to have the conversations so actually to empower and educate commissioners about choosing wisely what it can deliver ask their advice how that would play out in in you know the stps the accountable care organizations how can we help you improve population health and reduce inequalities so i think part of it is education and we tend to sort of for reasons i don't understand deliver education in silos but I'd like to see whole communities receiving this education. I don't see this education as different for the public, so I could see being able to go to health watches as they prioritise what they think is important. So I think maybe I've been reflecting on this because of today. Maybe what we want is, is a much better overall script that doesn't attempt to give a different language to different audiences. If we believe in this, the message should be the same for everybody because we're in this together and together we can. Okay. Ramai, did you want to add something? Um, it was just, I think, underpinning this is um, if we look at a lot of the literature around shared decision-making, so Natalie Joseph-Williams, um, who I know you've interviewed previously, um, did a systematic review a few years ago on attitudinal barriers to shared decision-making. And actually, rather disappointingly, um, as a clinician, it came up with issues such as there was still a perceived power imbalance. There was still a perceived um, white coat silence. So, of course, I can't ask a doctor to do something that is perhaps perceived, inverted commas, against their best advice. Um, and there was a perceived... Um, good patient role so I should just follow the orders that I'm given so I think moving forward what I'd really like is um, 
some way of actually activating and empowering patients to say, actually, it's okay to ask. And actually, the Australian Choosing Wisely campaign, that's exactly their hashtag, it's okay to ask. <laughs> um, but similarly, I also think, um, and I take Sue's point about, obviously, we've got to amalgamate this so that actually we're kind of public and professional facing at once. But what why Choosing Wisely really resonated with me is it gave me a voice. Um, so... You know, during my training, I was in multiple situations. So three in the morning with someone with advanced leukemia, having had four cycles of chemotherapy, do I admit them to intensive care or not? Um, meeting a patient on the morning of surgery, so Sue's example of the total knee replacement, you know, someone who is frail, elderly, who walks half a mile to the shops and back, completely content with his life, and he has no idea why he's having a knee replacement in an hour. And I think it's just given me, it's given me permission to say this is not okay and we need to change the way we deliver this um, and we would need to somehow find a way to return the decision-making, inverted commas, I don't want to use the word power per se, but the decision-making impetus back to the patient and say actually, you know, it's okay to challenge and we don't take that as a reflection of our practice and I'm perfectly happy with a patient making an informed decision that is perhaps not congruent with what, you know, I may perceive is the best in their... Because I'm not walking in their shoes. I don't have to deal with their peroctive complications in six months, 12 months, five years down the line. Um, so I think em empowering both professionals and patients in the public that it's OK to challenge the status quo and it's OK to ask. And I think certainly within my background, I've always had very supportive seniors, so even as training I've been able to phone at four in the morning and say I don't think this is acceptable I don't think this is what the patient needs and I've, I'm thankful I've had the senior support to make those decisions um, and I don't know if that's the same across the board but you shouldn't be in the position of that being happenstance exactly uh, and I think um, this is going to be I think if we can get the training and the understanding right through medical school yeah. I think this is going to be where um, younger members of the profession yeah. have much to teach elder members of the profession. And to me, this is the perfect synergy of being able to deliver evidence-based care yeah. that is values-based care. Yeah. And that, I think, should be um, really absolutely core to why we came into the profession. We've had a lot of conversation about culture shift, and I have a bit of an antibody to the word culture, because at the end of the day... Um, you've asked us what we can measure. I think that's going to be tricky. But we know that if you can bring about 5% change in outcome, and that will be largely 5% change in behaviour, then that is a very successful intervention for most things in this world, one of which most high-powered businesses will be happy with. So I think we have to be reasonable in our aspiration. We'll never be able to prove that it's this rather than lots of other things have done it. But frankly, um, you know, I think we've got to get over that and does that matter? But certainly this does matter and I think it can be a real game changer. Yeah, yeah I, I, and I think, um, you know, we need both better role models um, in senior positions as well as medical students who are inculcated with the right attitudes. Um, and I think that's something that this Choosing Wisely campaign is uh, coming up with. Um, better um, 
better rules of engagement in in patient contacts and the medical encounter, better systems as well, because um, as Ramai was saying, you know those those situations should not arise uh, de novo in those situa in 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 the middle of the night or an hour before an operation. We need that that's just bad practice. Uh, we we need to think through how we implement <coughs> better decision making about the types of surgery people opt for. Um, give them more chance to understand their procedures and to back out and to. Uh, empower them to not be awkward patients but to be autonomous patients uh, and and to regard that as something good and for us as doctors to acknowledge that as something that's their right. Um, in end-of-life care, which Ramai also mentioned, that there are um, lots of uh, decision-making processes that are now being developed which we could share much more widely both in primary and in secondary care and with with our fellow professionals um, and it's those sorts of things that are going to come about through a synergy between us and other groups and um, if we of course it's nice if we can take the credit for particular things but um, even more it would be nice if we could lead in a process of joined up thinking uh, and coming together of, of everybody with similar aims. I think the important thing is that no no one owns this um, and it's to kind of leave your egos at the door um, and I personally I don't it doesn't matter how this comes into practice if I see this in my clinical career then I'd be delighted and um, yeah, so it really, the portal doesn't matter. It's just as long as the destination is the right thing to do. And that destination, as, as Sue was saying, may be just, uh, you know, five miles instead of 50 miles ahead. Um, we can only get 50 miles ahead by going the first five miles and carrying on. And, um, yeah, I, I've learned that since retirement from general practice. I thought, you know, how can I change the world and make, um, or what contribution can I put um, into this um, while I've still got some kind of um, energy left? And, of course, you, you gradually downscale your ambitions. But that's not to say that I'm not without ambition for the rest of the century, which I won't see. I think that's that's an ambition which should fire every young doctor and everyone entering the health professions to um, sort out the mess that we've got ourselves into through uh, a whole mixture of different drivers. Ignore the drivers to some extent because we can't change them overnight, but have a vision of where we're going and share that vision with patients and I think we'll get there five miles at a time. Thank you. Um, so we've covered a lot of things in that, that section um, but again I think for me it comes back to sort of having a common language that's not different for patients and not different for professionals but that you know everyone can agree on and, and have common ideas of what is what is the right thing to do um, and what sort of that moral imperative is and, and what we sh in every kind of unit of care whether that's system level or sort of individual level so that's, and that's this is a very helpful permissive framework for doing that isn't it whether it's for a voice of clinicians or voice for, for patients so I think those are sort of important points um, you talked about working with other 
groups who are aligned to this this aim um do you have sort of formal ways of, of working with other other stakeholders at the moment or is that something that you hope to develop um so i've been at the academy for just over a year and it's been a really interesting year particularly um for shared decision making so as you may know nice have come together with a shared decision making collaborative um nhs england have made shared decision making a priority through their person-centered care work um, Health Education England similarly um, are looking at how we deliver education and training in person-centred care. So again, I think from the inverted commas professional perspective, um, we're doing quite well and we work collaboratively and we equally sit on each other's um, committees. So we're part of the shared um, decision-making collaborative at NICE, for example, and um, NHS England Symposium. Um, and I think part of the process is actually delineating what the academy can offer um, over and above what is existing um, and actually where this all sits because for example NHS England are doing a huge drive on public and patient engagement and their legacy decision aids for example Um, so it's really working collaboratively but also using our workforce whether that's time, people, money, um, resourcefully Um, so those discussions have already happened Um, you mentioned other initiatives like getting it right first time and right care and similarly we work um, closely with them as well um, I, I, I would, what I would like the Academy to provide is a sort of safe docking pad for all these things so that, that we can see the commonalities we, we can recognise the differences where there should be differences um, so that we don't overwhelm either the, the busy practitioner the receptionist in outpatients and above all the patient and the carer and we come out with a script with this is what we want to do this is the clear message there's several initiatives trying to do this but actually can we describe this in a short sentence so you're doing this because people are going to be hearing and therefore I I think you know we're not going to get a better opportunity I I think sometimes you say up to 5,000 people are aware of this so I, I would like 5,000 responses, which, which um, I will um, uh, sort of volunteer Joan to analyse because we, cause that is yet another way of starting the conversation and we're growing up to many different groups of people. So I'm very keen that, that we take this out to children uh, and because uh, um, of other things I do in life, um, started to discuss this with schools and head teachers. Um, I'm very keen that this... that. Choosing wisely cannot be an initiative of exclusion. So I know that it's perfectly possible to have shared decision making and choosing wisely um, with with groups of society that people think this might be difficult. So people with moderate to severe learning disability, this is perfectly possible. We have lots of ways of doing it. And indeed, what are labelled as quite vulnerable parts of community often have the best ideas of how to move forward. So... uh, you know, this is why this is a good opportunity to bring in yet more knowledge. The more knowledge we have, and I'm sure we'll find commonalities, and we need to tease those out and go with them. And do you feel like the academy is is sort of well placed within the system to provide that docking pad for for these initiatives? A- a- absolutely, yes. And I think it will also help us to work together across the different parts of medicine. I think that could be one of the one of the best sort of um, incidental beneficial side effects. Um, so I live in hope and travel in hope and we want to arrive safely. Excellent. I think the one thing I will add is, you know, 
again to those out there this is an open invite for patient organizations to approach us and please tell us you know how we can help um so you know directly organizations such as national voices come together and you know we'd love to work collaboratively and closely with you um and as we said you know we're the toddler so we're learning um but the timing seems now we've got these five questions for example how do we promote them how do we actually ensure that patients feel empowered to use them um so yeah this is an open call great thank you so you've talked about sort of quite big sort of macro system level there and then sort of organization level but but for the sort of individual clinician who we hope is listening and who we hope is is fired up uh, as Richard said with all of this and, and ambitious to sort of make this happen in practice what what are the sort of messages for those clinicians to, to take home and and really uh, sort of um encourage sort of move towards choosing wisely um I actually think, you know, I, when I present on shared decision making, I actually say you can start this tomorrow by just asking your patient what matters to you and just open your conversation with that. Um, some of, so within um, my clinical context, um, there's been great work down in Torbay where they've been doing shared decision making clinics for about 10 years already. Um, so this is already embedded in practice. It's led by Dr. Mike Swart, who leads the National Practice Medicine Programme. And um when I speak to him about it, about what's their methodology, it's just being nice to patients. It's giving them enough preparations. You know, here is where you can park your car. This is probably how much it's going to cost. So they don't turn up to the consultation flustered. When they do turn up to the consultation, almost have an icebreaker um, so that they're settled and relaxed. Because actually what you're trying to do is you're trying to build this immensely trusting relationship and rapport in a very short space of time. And it's called unlocking the patient. Um, so perhaps going straight in with actually, you know, oh, I understand that you had a myocardial infarction in 2001 is perhaps not the best approach to do that. And actually just asking, you know, what matters to you? What are your values? And sometimes that unpicking, certainly in my context, um, I found that simply asking that means actually a lot of the further questions become irrelevant because it becomes the actual right option for the patient becomes very clear to them very quickly. Um, so you can start this tomorrow by just, you know, ask ask your patient what matters to them. <laughs> and I think that becomes immeasurable yeah. at the local level. So if you're yeah. in a local practice, yeah. you know, if yeah. together as a group practice you decided, right, this is our first thought of the day, and you started to do it, and, and I can hear people listening to the podcast saying, oh, this is all a bit flaky, and if you were sat in my chair, you couldn't do this. But I, th- I think this is what happened in primary care in Italy. They did start to do this. And then I think you'd start to see the benefit because the patients would start to feed back more positives. I think you would eventually save time. And, of course, I would see, say this being a mental health professional, what I would like to see is, given that, that we were all very worried about, about the welfare of the workforce, uh, I would like to see a few um, units, whatever they are, um, doing some simple measures of staff well-being and see if actually this process brought about an improvement in staff well-being. And there you start to get the real gains in terms of the difficult sort of winding grinding down conversations we have about retention and 
recruitment and I think this I see this from a mental health perspective as a good tool to start to deliver that so I think there there are some measurables that that people leading group practices could start to bring on board and it would be very simple You've been listening to Sue Bailey, Ramai Sanrathapala and Richard Lehman talk Choosing Wisely and how the campaign is going to run in the UK. You can find out more about the campaign, including the recommendations from the individual colleges and the questions that patients should be asking their doctors on the website choosingwisely.co.uk. If you've enjoyed this podcast, subscribe. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you'll also find over 200 episodes from our back catalogue, all available for free. Thanks for listening.